phenomenon that impacts one in six adult Americans mm. is going to have a significant impact on American culture and society in pretty much any way that you slice it. Right. So this is the largest shift in American religious history. It's also the fastest. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. We are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. It's called de-churching, and it impacts more people than the First and Second Great Awakening and every revival in our country combined, but in the opposite direction. Very little study has been done on de-churching until Jim Davis and Michael Graham commissioned the largest and most comprehensive study of de-churching in America by renowned sociologists Dr. Ryan Birch and Dr. Paul Jupe. Together they share their findings in their new book, The Great De-churching: Who's Leaving, Why They Are Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back, which just released today. Today, I welcome Michael Graham to Candid Conversations to discuss the great de-churching. What you will hear is shocking, but also encouraging, because there are tangible steps you can take to help stem the tide. Michael Graham is Program Director at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He is also the Executive Producer and Writer for the As in Heaven podcast, He received his MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He is a member at Orlando Grace Church, and he is married to Sarah, and they have two children, and we are grateful to have him on the podcast today. Well, today my guest is Michael Graham, and he has a new book coming out called The Great De-Churching. He's written this with Jim Davis and Ryan Burge. It comes out August 21st, and he is the executive producer of As in Heaven and director of the Keller Center. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. It's good to be with you, Jonathan. Well, Michael, I wonder if you could just take a minute, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got connected with Keller Center, and then we'll move into how you got into the book and, and all the research data that's coming out of that. Yeah, well, I um, was a pastor for almost 15 years, primarily in Orlando, Florida. Did some church planting and some other things in finance as well in my backstory. Always been somebody who's cared about data, um, was a math science geek kind of growing up. Okay. <laughs> Did uh, build some algorithms to don't do remember a lot of those guys in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> I built some algorithms in the nineties to predict the stock market that um, was interesting. Wow. But uh, anyways, I've been a uh, longtime friends with Colin Hansen, who's the editor in chief for the gospel coalition. And we started talking a little over two years ago about this idea for the Keller center for cultural apologetics. Yeah. Um, a kind of a sub-ministry underneath the Gospel Coalition, which was co-founded with uh, Tim Keller and D.A. Carson, yeah. that would help people in the West be able to communicate the gospel in ways that are comprehensible mm. and uh, plausible to highly mm. secular people. So that's where I work now, mainly do project management to uh, help create resources that are in writing, audio, video, and online interactive that help people communicate their faith in highly secular environments. So, 
Tell us a little bit about As in Heaven. So this is your podcast. Is it under the banner of Keller Center or Gospel Coalition or... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, our podcast lives on the TGC Podcast Network and, you know, is part of the Keller Center's programming. And so, basically, As in Heaven does a deep dive on Mm -hmm. one complex topic per season. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, our third season was on the phenomenon of dechurching in America. So, how we kind of stumbled upon that was about five years ago, Jim and I were doing some research and we're kind of curious about why many people in our city seem to used to go to church, but not now. Mm. And uh, stumbled across some data that was roughly about 42% of our city had dechurched. Well, we're like, okay, well, that's a lot of people. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of people. people. You know, in our seven county area, that's two million people. And, and so, was that within a certain time period that data set gave you? or Yeah, so we weren't able to find out too much about that, that okay. data. Right. right. Because it wasn't public. You know, those it's just countries. a shocking number. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we got with our elders and we we're like, guys, if this is like the third largest block of people behind gender and yeah. ethnicity in our context. Yeah. So we need to know more about what's going on here. And if these are folks that used to go to church pretty regularly, I imagine there's some pretty low hanging fruit there of right. folks that might be willing to return. But yeah. we just need to know more about who these people are. Why do they leave? And um, how many of them are willing to return and, and, and on what conditions? Yeah. So that began a process where it's like, well, we got this vehicle of this podcast here. Why don't we just do a lengthy deep dive on this? Yeah. So we started doing due diligence of what other data was out there on this group mm-hmm. of people. That led us to our conversations with Ryan Burge, who's widely regarded as the you know best um, quantitative social scientist in the country. In other words... Mm. You know, the best religion data guy. And so there was some data that you could look at, but there wasn't much there in terms of questions that we would need to ask. They were, you know, far more general questions. Yeah. And so we knew that we needed to do a much more comprehensive study and kind of zoom in and drill down there. So we raised funds and yeah. we worked with um, Ryan Burge and then another uh, social scientist, Paul Jupe on study design mm-hmm. so that we could build a study that went through an academic peer review process so that our study can be published in, in actual, academic, you yeah. know, uh, academic or journalistic environments. And so, yeah, so we did a, a three phase study, looked at about 7,000 people through those three phases. And so from the highest altitude, we learned that there's 40 million adult Americans um, who have left the church. That's one in six adults in America, 40 million, somebody who's churched, means um that means you used to go to church at yeah. least once a month yeah and now less than once per year so in other wow words, you used to go monthly and now now not at all and so huge regardless shift. of you know whether you love jesus or these different kinds of things obviously yeah. a phenomenon that impacts one in six adult americans mm. is going to have a significant impact on american culture and society in pretty much any way that you slice it right so this is the largest shift in American religious history. It's also the fastest. Right. So yes. in terms of the total number of people who have left, this is larger than the first Great Awakening plus the second Great Awakening plus everybody ever connected to the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So everybody who's listening combined, to this. Combined, yeah, right? Yeah, All of it. Everybody who's listening to this has friends, family, neighbors, yeah. co-workers who fit this kind of de category. So it's really something that, that touches us all. Um, wow. Wow. So it seems like those in churches are 
Would you say that they had somewhat awareness of this? I mean, the whole concept of de-church, I guess you're defining that as kind of what you just said there, which is attending less than once a year. Is that yeah, kind of the, yeah. the criteria? Yeah. So if somebody's a CEO Christian, that's Christmas and Easter only. Yeah. Priesters. Those people aren't even considered de-churched in terms of okay. our category. If we included those folks, it would be several million more people. Right. We really wanted to give a definition that was like, these people are... You know, they are not they're out. Going, yep. You know, they're, they're out. out. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, in terms of like the reasons why people left, it varies widely. And this is why in the book, The Great Dechurching, we unpack six different profiles. Mm-hmm. So four different types of people who left out of evangelical contexts, and then a mainline group and a Roman Catholic group. Okay. And so the reasons why each of these different groups left very, very widely. And so yes. we wanted granularity in terms of being able to easily communicate some different profiles. Yeah. And, and so some of these groups vary widely demographically. Yeah. They vary widely in terms of their, the percent who are willing to return. Yeah. And they vary widely in terms of why they left and why they might be willing to return. Mm, mm, mm. And so, okay. I think one of the most important aspects of the book itself is giving people a simple and digestible rubric of like, oh, I'm talking to somebody, you know, my neighbor, you know, two doors down. Well, their family used to go to such and such evangelical church and they left during COVID. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, which profile does that kind of look like? And what can I learn from other people who are similar to that household kind of across the country? Yeah. How do I engage and relate to that person in a way that's uh, winsome and wise? And so that's Mm. the kind of thing that we're doing there in the book is just kind of unpacking what does it look like to engage with different types of people in ways that are more effective. Yeah. Okay. So it's a helpful tool for churches, church leaders, but also for believers who have a concern about their neighbors, their family members, those that are in kind of their proximity to have a more effective, helpful conversation. Is that, that's kind of the. So we wrote this book for people who are sad Mm -hmm. about people who they care about who have left church and what does it look like to help relate with those people in a better and more effective way? Yeah. And just to give some altitude and some understanding and a voice that, Mm. you know, maybe those folks won't tell them why, you know, but here's some rails to run on and writing up profiles is never necessarily a super clean thing. Right. Most of the time, you know, you're dealing with high altitude data, you know, People aren't labels, you know, everybody's yeah, different. Right. Exactly. But I think most people will probably, you'll see shades of one or two profiles in, in yes. each person. Right. Some persons, you know, might be really pegged. The ex-evangelical group is pretty well-defined. And I think the mainstream de-churched evangelical group is pretty well-defined in terms of those things. Some of the other groups are a little less clear. So I want us to just sort of fly over these, especially the four of the evangelical profiles. And I think as people listen to your description, I think they're going to agree and find this has been my experience with such and such person who kind of fits into this. As I listened to the podcast episode that you guys have done, I found like it resonated with a lot of what I have seen. 
in spaces around me. So I wonder if we could just take a few minutes and just sort of dip into each of these, particularly the four evangelical profiles. So this is about 15 million people, I think yes. it sounds like. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So there's four groups. The first group we call cultural Christians, and they're about 8 million people. So about okay. half of the de-churched evangelicals. Wow. And then the second, third, and fourth group, they're all about two to two and a half million each. So the second group is mainstream evangelicals. The third group are ex-evangelicals. And the fourth group is called BIPOC. That's black, indigenous, and persons of color. That's a group that's entirely non-white. Now, it is important to note that when we ran the machine learning algorithm over the entire data set, we did not let that algorithm see or sort based on race or ethnicity. Mm. But what is interesting is that the first group is 98% white. And the fourth group is 0% white. And so race and ethnicity definitely casts a a fairly long shadow Mm. on the data. And so just, you know, just just kind of a note or caveat. So first, here's a little bit about that first group, cultural Christians. A little bit more male than female, average age 40. They left about a decade ago, 98% white, 87% married, above average income in education, relatively low understanding of the gospel. Mm. Um, So things like Trinity, divinity and humanity of Jesus, resurrection, penal substitutionary atonement, reliability of the Bible, not great. Um, Could be worse, but not great. This group was center left politically, but you wouldn't describe them as progressive. They were the least racially sensitive group of all Mm. the different groups. Uh, America seems to be working well for this group. You know, the ladders all seem to kind of be there. The reasons why they left were largely things that were related to apathy. Mm. Attending was inconvenient. Their friends weren't going. They moved. Uh, They chose to worship online. Yeah. Maybe there's a little bit of their, you know, some scandal. They wanted more sexual freedom, uh, gender identity stuff, and a little bit of suffering kind of sprinkled in. But in the book, we talk about two different categories of de-churched people. The first category, people who left the church casually, mm-hmm. and that's about 30 million of the 40 million people. And then the second group are people who are de-churched casualties. These are mm. people who left the church catastrophically. Yeah. And so 75% casual, um, 25% casualty. This group looks a little bit more casual in yeah. terms of they're leaving the church than casualty. And let me introduce just one thing here real quick. Um, Most people will fit in one of these three buckets in terms of what they need. Some people need a nudge. Some people need your dinner table. And some people need years and years of moving into their life. They probably still won't return. That first category of people who need a nudge, probably a a phone call, a face-to-face conversation, or even a text message might Mm. be enough to see them return, you know, and come back to church. Right. The second group, the dinner table, you're talking ideally like a community of people, not just one household on another household, but, you know, over time, that group just needs a little bit more relational intimacy. Maybe yeah. they've been gone for a bit longer and maybe they have some really uh, more significant core concerns about why they left and, things mm, that they're, mm. you know, responding or reacting to. Right. Um, that last group of years and years, they're probably not going to return. 
But I don't think it's a good habit for us to shed people, especially people that God might be continually putting in right. front of us in terms yeah. of you know where we live, work, and play. Um, Thankfully, no one gave up on us, right? That's right. And <laughs> we don't know the mind of the Lord, and we don't know what he does. So right. if God is putting somebody consistently in front of us, I think that that's somebody yeah. that you know we need to be investing in. But this group probably fits in that those first two categories. Okay. Somewhere between a nudge and our dinner table is kind of where most of these folks are at. Yeah. So this group, what they need from us, they need friendship from us. Yeah. They need sincere community, and there needs to be uh, sound doctrine and spiritual formation. Mm. The, the time frame for really all of these groups that are that's most critical is either eighteen to thirty nine or thirteen mm. to thirty. That's when people are making you know some of these biggest decisions. Mm. The second group are uh, from a high altitude, the mainstream evangelicals, a little bit more female than male, about the same age, um, average age 40. They dechurched around the time of COVID, mm-hmm. 91% white, average income, average education. This group understands the gospel and has a higher view of Jesus and a higher view of the Bible of people who actually go to church. Wow. Um, so this is the most low-hanging group. Yeah. A hundred percent of this group is willing to return to an evangelical church today. Wow. So this is the people that they just need a nudge, you know, a nudge, just yeah. like, if you invite these folks back to church, they're going to come. They're center right politically, a little bit more racially sensitive than the first group. Mm. American institutions worked okay for them. They got out of the habit largely for casual reasons. These aren't folks that have typically huge issues with the church might be a little bit of relational friction, you know, that's there, but a little bit of movement into their life. They're largely in that nudge category, maybe a few in the dinner table category. Okay. The third group is really sad and that's the ex-evangelical group. Mm. They left very catastrophically, Mm. predominantly female, 65%, average age 53. They de-churched a little bit after 9-11 on average, Mm. very high rates of divorce, Mm. low income, low education. This is a little bit different than the kind of deconstruction or kind of right. digital ex-evangelical community. Right. That yeah. Cause that's a with. term that's being used quite a lot these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that group is a subset sure. of yep. the hyper online kind of deconstruction world um, is a subset of this group. Yes. But by and large, this group is struggling economically and in American culture and society. They don't have too much time to be online. This group is is online less than any other group. And so there's a lot of people who fit this category who just aren't, you're not interacting with them because mm-hmm. either you don't know them or they're not online and they're not loud yeah. in terms of, you know, the lion share. So a little bit more ethnically diverse, only 82% white, 13% black. Again, below average income, below average education, full-time work rates a little bit lower, lots of retirees. However, they had a relatively high orthodoxy score. Interesting. 97% said Jesus is the son of God. The second highest view of the Bible of of all the different groups. Many of them look like they're very spiritually sensitive and Mm. the Holy Spirit's still at at work in their life. they're independent, 58% self-identify as independent politically. In terms of ideology, they lean center-left. U.S. institutions worked worse for them than anybody else. Mm. And the reasons why they left were they did not have good relationships in the church, and yeah. they had a lot of friction in the churches that they were in. This group is deeply allergic to racism, mm. misogyny, and abuse, mm. as well as political polarization. Yeah, And so those were all kind of animating things and concerns. Um, 0% of this group 
are willing to return to an evangelical church. Interesting. But many are willing to return to a Christian church that's, you know, outside of the various evangelical traditions. Um, they're, and they're just looking for a church primarily that's going to promote a Jesus and gospel, both in proclamation and in demonstration, yeah. a Jesus that's true, good, and beautiful mm. all at the same time. So again, this group is, is deeply allergic to racism, misogyny, political polarization, and abuse. They need a nonpartisan church community. They need a church community that's going to yeah. take doctrine and ethics seriously. Yeah. This group is struggling in mental health, particularly in suicidal thoughts. Mm. And they need a community that's going to be empathetic and they need clergy that's going to be empathetic. Mm. So all of these groups are falling under the banner of evangelical. But, I mean, how are we defining evangelical at this point? Because uh, obviously definitions can mean a lot. And I, I'm guessing our listeners are listening to this and, and even they are all have different perspectives on what that means. Yeah. So these are people who self-identified evangelical and okay. they self-identified as being evangelical because they were connected to a tradition that was evangelical. So either they were non-denominational evangelical yeah. or they attended church inside a denomination that is evangelical Identified. in its yeah, beliefs, okay. Okay. Um, uh, beliefs, behaviors, and practices. Okay. So, All right. That helps. Uh, do you want me to go on to the fourth profile? The, yes, uh, please. The, yeah. So the fourth profile is the BIPOC profile. That's black indigenous persons of color. So mm-hmm. again, we didn't allow the algorithm to see ethnicity, but this group um, is 100% non-white. Um, very male group, 68% male. Mm-hmm. Um, like the ex-evangelicals, they dechurched in their early fifties, and they also dechurched a little bit before the, on average, a little bit before Y two K, the change in millennium around two thousand. Mm. Extremely high marriage rates, eighty percent ethnically, eighty two percent black, thirteen percent um, Hispanic Latino. That means over half of this group is black men. Okay? Mm. Interesting. So that's over. Okay. This is over a million people. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this group? Um, highest income, highest education. We're talking mid to high six figures on average among this group. Very right. upwardly mobile, um, non-white folks, predominantly men. 92% of them work full-time, only 1% retired. Wow. You know, and when you consider the fact that their average age is 51, that's significant. Mm. Um, like the first group in terms of their beliefs, not great orthodoxy score, only 13% Jesus is the son of God. Mm. Um, 29% Bible is the literal word of God. They look a, a bit like cultural Christians in terms of their beliefs. Okay. They're independent to center left politically. Um, American institutions have worked uh, not good for them. They're mm. not deeply progressive, however, on things like race. Um, so that might be surprising of a group that's 100% not white, but not mm. progressive um, mm. on race. Why did they leave? They left because they moved to a new community. Their faith wasn't working for them. They had other priorities for their time and money. There was some suffering that was there, doubting of God's existence, mm. clergy scandal, and they didn't see the congregations doing enough good in the community. Mm. Um, seven of the, the top eight reasons of why they'd be willing to return to church were relational in nature. And so what they need is deep friendship cultural and emotional intelligence. They need a church that's um, going to care about doctrine and ethics and spiritual formation. And this group needs uh, better engagement, particularly in the, in the 13 to 30 year old age range. Mm. And hearing all your sort of the analysis and the data, you know, I, I think we tend to think if we're thinking on a political spectrum, we're expecting 
a lot leaning heavy one way or the other, left or right, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. You know, that tends to be the narrative we often hear, uh, you know, they're woke, progressive, or they're Christian nationalists or whatever. But to think 40 million people, they're all sort of centrist in a lot of ways, just shades of left and right, it sounds like. Um, how did you all interpret that as you sort of pulled the data apart? So when you look at data, you know, you're going to be looking at bell curves when mm-hmm. you're looking at, you know, millions and millions of people. Right. You know, the Internet is a bit of a polarizing environment because right. it's an attention economy. Right. Yeah. Attention is money on the right. Internet. Yeah. Clicks and likes. Well, yeah. When attention is money, that's inherently radicalizing mm. because in order to gain attention, you have to do something that's more surprising or shocking than the person whose attention you're competing for. Right. And so, you know, the, the digital world is going to lend itself mm. to tribalism. And most people aren't wired to be super tribal, even mm. though, you know, the Internet's kind of like this funhouse mirror <laughs> that distorts the form and shape of culture and society and makes it seem probably more polarized than what it actually is when mm. you're, you know, in a more embodied real life context. Yeah, right. Um, it is significant, the dechurching that is occurring on what we have identified and call the secular left and the secular right. Mm. Certainly the shape of dechurching on the secular left certainly looks progressive in terms of it's uh, the kinds of ideas that are, you know, forming and shaping people who are leaving in that direction. Mm. And then, you know, on the secular right, interestingly enough, and this is probably relevant, we've seen this pastorally in our context, you know, of people who have found more meaning, identity, and purpose in kind of populist right-wing groups than they have in the local church. You know, and I think it's broadly true that, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Yes, right? absolutely. Right. And, and people want to be around other people who are like them. And so right. on the secular right, the rate of dechurching that's occurring out of evangelical contexts has sped up in recent times on that secular right. So people who are kind of leaving church because they found maybe close political alliances, you know, typically, again, in that kind of populist right wing, they found meaning, identity, purpose, community there more than in their local church. Mm. And so the rate of dechurching there out of evangelical context is occurring at twice the rate of what it is out of mm, interesting of their secular left, you know, progressive, uh, progressive yeah. counterparts. So that, that was definitely surprising and concerning to see that, oh, gosh, we do need to be multi-directional leaders and not just, you know, as shepherds, you know, not just looking mm-hmm. in, in one direction, but we've got to have a 360 degree view yeah. of things. And our concerns need to be proportional to the realities that we're facing pastorally. There's probably real warrant there for making sure that our folks aren't maybe too taken in to maybe American nostalgia Right. And worshiping American nostalgia over Jesus. Right. His kingdom is, you know, is permanent. And yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I love America. I'm only a second generation American, mm-hmm. but you know, this country has been nothing but good for me. I know that yeah. hasn't been everybody's experiences, but you know, I care about our country and yeah. patriotic to a degree, you know, despite my relative newness, you know, post world sure. war two. Yeah. But I think we have to be careful about how we order our loves mm-hmm. and our loves need to be proportional to what they should be. And mm. obviously our, you know, our love of Jesus and our affection for the gospel and his kingdom mm. is to be ultimate. And, mm. uh, you know, that's why we have all those sometimes difficult passages about, yeah, you, know, right. you know, leaving mother and brother and father leaving, and these kinds of things, um, as part of the cost of discipleship. So, and as you've given some of the statistics and the n- numbers of people, I mean, was any of this broken down in terms of regions like West Coast, uh, Midwest, Southeast, Northeast, any of that sort of data come in to the subset or? Yeah, it does. You know, the, the dechurching out of the Northeast is more of the Roman Catholic and mainline variety, but that's sure. because of the historical ways in which, you know, those traditions, evangelicals don't have a huge presence in Northeast New England area, you know, and that's, right. those things are historical largely in right. nature. Right. right. The Midwest was really surprising. Um, a lot mm. of dechurching that's occurring out of there. And mm. something that's relevant here is in, um, the least likely person to dechurch out of an evangelical church is somebody who got a graduate degree. <laughs> I think typically sometimes in our circles, you know, people yeah. will say you think that, academia is kind of uh, yeah, swaying yeah, the, people. The, the secular university is what's, yeah. you know, destroying the faith of our children and these different kinds of things. But it, it's actually the exact opposite is the case. Um, if, if you want your, your children or grandchildren to hold on to the faith, you know, have them get undergraduate graduate <laughs> degrees because those are the folks who are really sticking. Now, mm. related to that, I think there's something that's going on there. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who were leaving the faith during that time yeah. frame. Right. Yeah. But I don't think it's actually, you know, the way that those universities are wired. And, you know, it's no great surprise that, you know, most American universities probably lean left, um, sometimes Mm. heavily so. However, I do think that what's going on and what seems relatively clear in the data is that church has become a middle and upper middle and upper class phenomenon in the United States. If you're lower middle class or lower class, these are the people who are dechurching at a more rapid rate. So going back to your question about region, yeah. um, the dechurching that was occurring in the Midwest region really surprised me. But then when we started to drill down about what was going on economically mm. um, in that region, you know, in kind of the Rust Belt America, right? and you really drill down in the ways of like, you know, the rise of the kind of populist right in that Rust Belt, It really begins to make a lot of sense. You know, you have a lot of disaffected people where the ladders of American culture and society are fundamentally not working for them. And Mm. you can understand why there's concerns about, you know, globalization and, you know, Mm. different concerns about because many of these people live in communities whose primary economic infrastructure has been substantially impacted over the last 25 to 30 years. Mm. So that was surprising to see the rate of dechurching there in the Midwest. Things aren't as bad as what you might anticipate in the South and on the West Coast. Those communities seem to be a, a little bit more resilient um, but yeah, there, there, there's contours and shapes of all those things. We, we go into great detail on that in the first seven chapters of the book. Michael, what does this say about 
what churches were doing during these time. You know, it sounds like you've kind of pegged some timelines, sort of uh, Y2K, September 11, COVID. I mean, if anything, does it say anything about what churches were preaching or saying that that was a disconnect with people? Speaking primarily here to, you know, the evangelical context. Yeah. You got to think Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, Rage Against the Machine's first album, Metallica's Black Album. This is like the 1991, 1992 is when the stuff is really starting to to pick up in evangelical contexts. Mm. You know, de-churching had really already started picking up in the mainline world and the Roman Catholic world before that. But this is when things were really kind of accelerating really right at about 30 years ago. Mm. And so... What you had there was a combination of three things kind of hitting at the same time, and that is the rise of the religious right, okay, the moral majority or okay, yep. Christian right, whatever you want to call it. Yep, yep. Um, you have the end of the Cold War, okay, you know, the fall of the Iron Curtain, the you know, and the collapse of the USSR. Right. What you have to remember is peak churching in America was in about the 70s, you know, mm. at the height of the Cold War. America added... In God We Trust, yeah. uh, to our money, and One Nation Under God, to our pledge, you mm. know, in the, in the 50s there. And mm. so these things were in reaction to the Cold War. Yeah, and, socialist mentality. You know, those who were communist, well, they were godless. Mm. They were atheists, you know, yeah. and all of these things. And so the good guys are, so, you know, in the world were, they were the ones who had faith. Theists, right? Yeah, sure. And they were theists. But yeah. 9-11 kind of really undermined a lot of that because the people who committed that act on our soil, these were religious fundamentalists, so to right, speak. Right, right, right. And so we went from the kind of branding around people who were persons of faith in our country being the kind of heroes you know, of American culture and society and the kind of flag bearers and the best exemplars you know, of, of American culture and society right, to... Right. In some ways, when you have a foil or you mm. have a common enemy, well, mm. that can form how the in-group kind of views themselves. And so mm. in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, in communism, in the end of that Cold War, there was less of an outgroup to kind of identify yourself as being against and we're not, you know, we're a society that's not like this other one. And so yeah. I think a lot of those things... You know, and there's a there's at least twenty other factors we could talk about in terms of the rise right. of the internet and right. broadband internet and the demo- access to information, yeah, and, access to yeah. information, the do- democratization of knowledge, the rise of social media and, and web yeah. 2.0, um, smartphone technology, yeah, certainly you know through fuel and created a flywheel there of how you know dechurching just accelerated from that point on. Yeah, I noticed pretty much every category reasons for leaving i just picked up on the relational aspect of everything even the way that you described how to interact with these particular groups it's nudge which is a connection point dinner table highly social long-term relationship investing all of them are fall under a relational capacity do you think that perhaps maybe churches or christians have um there's been a neglect in that area. Certainly COVID would have forced some of those things. When you really zoom out, people have left largely because 
and or are willing to return. That's the other side of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they're, they're looking for good relationships in a good institution. Okay. And the good news is most of the reasons why people are willing to return are things that are actually within our control. Yeah, right. And over half of these people are willing to return today, which is, you know, great news. Shocking, yeah. And so in the book, we talk about six key awarenesses that people can have. And if you possess these things, that Mm -hmm. people will experience you as relating, you know, winsomely. So those key awarenesses are God awareness, Mm -hmm. self awareness, Mm -hmm. others awareness, Mm -hmm. awareness of how other people are experiencing you, Mm. cultural awareness and emotional awareness. Mm. So, you know, when we're tuned into God, when we have a deep understanding of who we are and what our story is, when we're thinking actively about other people and thinking about them and their stories, Mm. when we're in tune with how other people are experiencing us, when we have awareness of our own emotions and other people's emotions And when we're aware of differences in cultural nuance, you put all of those things together and you're able to relate to people in better ways. And I think in in many ways, a lot of what's been missing in apologetics or evangelistic content in the last few decades is just kind of some of the skills that you'd have of somebody who's like a good counselor. In other words, how do I ask good questions how am I a good active listener? Yeah. And then, you know, cause people will tell you what they're looking for. They'll mm. tell you where they're struggling. They'll tell you where their animating concerns are. They'll tell you what will speak powerfully to them. They'll even tell you what aspects of the gospel are going to be more powerful and more meaningful yeah. to them. Yeah. But you know, we have to have a posture of quiet, calm mm. curiosity Mm. When we have a posture of quiet, calm curiosity with people, it's disarming. Look, yeah. American you know, culture and society has been in, in a state where it's been fracturing yeah. and people are emotionally dysregulated and yes. they have strong feelings about things. Mm. And when we get in a place where we're in kind of a fight or flight situation with people, well, the part of our brain where logic and reasoning and and persuasion occurs, it, mm. it gets bypassed. And mm. we end up living, you know, in a different part of our brain that's mm. more concerned about, you know, survival and these kinds of things. Mm. So if we want to have influence with people, they need to be calm and feel safe and comfortable when they're speaking with us. Yeah. So I think that if we want to be persuasive to other people, we have to be secure in ourselves first. Yeah. We have to have confidence in the gospel, the confidence that allows us to talk 10% of the time and listen 90% of yeah. the time. And the confidence... Two, two ears, one mouth, right? You know, and look, <laughs> at the end of the day, we have to know the difference between validating and mm. affirmation. Right. You know, validation typically deals with people's emotions. Mm. Affirmation typically deals with people's ideologies. Mm. Well, it's like I can sit across the table from somebody whose ideologies I just fundamentally can't affirm. However, they might have experiences and emotions that, man, that would be really hard. 
man, yeah. I haven't had your experiences, but man, if that was a part of my story, that's so hard. I'm yeah. so sorry. You know? Yeah. So being able to know the difference between validating people's emotions and their experiences mm. yeah. and affirming problematic ideologies. I think it's helpful when we can lean into just some of the differences between those things. And yeah. there are ways that we can validate hard things in people's lives without necessarily affirming, you know, ideologies that, right. you know, that we can agree with. So, yes, uh, I think that's a really helpful lens for us to consider because I think you're right. We tend to kind of throw it all together and want to just have a one response. We're also very good at uh, being talking heads and um, telling people how it is. And I think people have had enough of that to some degree. And there's a way to be articulate and winsome and caring and present the gospel to people in a way that isn't just coming across as uh, vindictive. Uh, So one of my last questions I really have is now you've had time to kind of wrestle with data, consider these things. You're in Orlando have you guys had any sort of experience in engaging with what the data that you've learned, the book that you've written, all the things, the outcomes, what's sort of been your experience so far with that? Yeah. So one of the cool things, writing a book is about an 18 month process from the moment that, you know, you have your outline to actual publication. So we've had a lot of time to just kind of beta test a lot of these different things. Some in our own church, in our own context, you know, Jim and I are both at the same church, Orlando Grace Church, but we've also had an opportunity to share basically all of our findings with a number of other, you know, pastors and clergy kind of across the country. And mm-hmm. they've been kind of doing, you know, similar things, you know, in their own context and just kind of experimenting. And so we've taught our folks basically on what it looks like to, you know, identify some of the different groups, you know, who are these folks? What does it look like to relate to them? And I think in demystifying who are all these different folks and what did these different profiles need, it's really given people a lot of confidence to be like, okay, this is what it looks like for me to relate effectively here mm. in this relationship. And that might mm. be the person two doors to my right might be different than, you know, the guy at the water cooler or the person who's caddy corner over here on the cul-de-sac. Right. And so that's giving people confidence to like know how to relate. So we've seen a lot of people who used to go to our church or used to go mm. to other churches in the city come and return. There's another church that's larger than ours in a different state but they've seen hundreds of people, you know, return yeah. to their church as they've kind of equipped their church body with just some of these tools and just kind of simple things. So um, I think that demystifying things, giving people some best practices and some rails to run on and giving them some tools in terms of, you know, how to identify folks and know what different people need and exercise mm-hmm. some relational discernment. Mm-hmm. I think those have been the things that have been kind of the most helpful as people have kind of been interacting with the material. Obviously, data like 40 million Americans who used to go to church who no longer do, it can sort of take your breath away in a sense. But it sounds like from the research, there's opportunity. So there's hope. Um, so if anyone listening to this knows of someone, a friend, a neighbor, a family member who is in this category, we recommend that you pick up the book, The Great Dechurching with uh, Jim Davis, Ryan Burge, and Michael Graham. And um, hopefully it will equip people with some helpful tools, some uh, ways of thinking, and give us some hope that uh, these people will return to Christ and his church. Michael Graham, I am so thankful. Your podcast is As in Heaven, and um, 
Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode. This episode.